Please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 75. I was uh, originally planning on starting the book of James immediately after the book of Habakkuk, um, but then when James, the um, sabbatical for James got announced, I decided I would start the book of James in the morning in the first week of September, and then um, we'll be in the book of James then, um, not in his honor, I had already picked that out, uh, we'll be in the book of James, and when he comes back, then uh, we'll bring that study back to the evening. So if you're wondering what, what I'm doing in these weeks, I'm buying time. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure getting into uh, these little psalms. Um, they might be little, but uh, God's word is very big and amazing. Psalm 75, this is God's holy and inspired and infallible word. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks to your, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray. Lord, we would uh, come to you and we would ask for your help this evening. We would ask that you would help us to meditate on your word. We would ask that you would open up to our minds and to our hearts what your word has to say. Lord, we want to know what it had to say to the people it was written to. And, and we want to know how you would have it apply in our own lives. And so, Lord, as we think about your word, as we meditate on your word, uh, would you search uh, our hearts and our lives, what you are doing in our lives, and would you help us to think about and know and understand what you would have us to do, how this word of yours should shape us and mold us and lead us and guide us. Oh, Lord, we need your help. You know that we are hard of hearing we pray that you would help us to hear your voice. We'd ask it for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how many of you are living your Christian lives in a hostile environment, sometimes being the only Christian in your family or the only Christian in the workplace 
or being one of very few Christians in school can be a very lonely place. It can be a lonely place. It can be an abusive place. It can be a hostile place to be. For instance, some professors are on a crusade to crush the faith of Christians who wander into their classrooms. Some professors have a chip on their shoulders about Christianity. And so they use it as a platform, that is their authority in their classroom as a platform to abuse their students, to mock their students. One college student said that on his first day of class, the professor asked all the Christians if they would raise their hands. And once two or three went up, the professor ensured them that by the end of the class, they would no longer be Christians. And this, of course, got a chuckle out of some of the others in the class. This is what it's like to be a minority, even a super minority. It's what it's like. It can be like when you're surrounded by unbelievers. There might be mockery and disdain and abuse. This is who Asaph is writing to in Psalm 75. People who are surrounded and who are being abused by unbelievers, Asaph is seeking to encourage believers who were suffering injustice at the hand of unbelievers. He reminds them that God will call the wicked to account and that God is in control. In verse 2, he says that God has fixed a time. All right, he has the, the authority and he has fixed a time where he will bring judgment. Asaph wants his readers to be encouraged by understanding that God is in complete control. He's in complete control. You should be encouraged by God's sovereign power. That's our first heading, God's sovereign power. The superscription is part of God's Word. In fact, if you get a Hebrew Bible, you'll see that the superscription is verse 1. And the superscription of our psalm says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. So the superscription identifies Asaph as the author of this psalm. And one thing you might have noticed is that's unique about the psalm is the structure of the psalm. There are speaker changes within the psalm, aren't there? The psalm opens with the psalmist speaking on behalf of the congregation. And then in verses 2 through 5, God is speaking. Verses 6 through 8 are a prophetic response to God's statement. And then the psalmist closes in verse 9 with a personal, first-person, singular response of praise and commitment. And then you'll see verse 10 is an oracle from God. It is a promise. Psalm 75 is continuing a theme of judgment which started in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, Asaph is distraught over the success of the ungodly that he sees around him. But when he returns to God's sanctuary, he's reminded of their end. Their end, of course, will be destruction. 
And then Psalm 74 is a plea for God to act on behalf of his people. It beckons God to remember his covenant, to rise up on behalf of his people and to bring judgment against their enemies. Psalm 75 then is kind of a response to that plea from Psalm 74. Psalm 75, in Psalm 75, the psalmist no longer doubts or complains against God, but praises him from the opening verse. He's come to realize that though he is surrounded by trouble, God is near. Psalm 75 begins, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We see that we are to be grateful You are to be grateful. For what? Why are you supposed to be grateful? Because God's name is near. What does that mean? What does it mean that God's name is near? God's name is his reputation, it's his record, it's his standing, his integrity, it's all that he's done. But his name is more than that. It's who he is. It's who he is. That's what the third commandment is about, isn't it? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that commandment is more than just not using the OMGs, not saying the words, but not thinking about him. It's more than that. It's about not taking God in vain not neglecting him, not being presumptuous. It's about recognizing his presence, his existence. You know that he is near you, even as near as sitting next to you. He is always by. He is present. Knowing that God's name is near. It's about recognizing that God is in control of what happens to you in this world. And God has revealed who he is through his word and his wonderful deeds. In Psalm 75, the congregation says, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. They remember how God has reached out to them in the past. They remember about how he split the Red Sea. They remember how God fought alongside of Joshua and lengthened the day. They remember how he guided the stone out of David's sling that sunk into, the, into Goliath's head, into the warrior's head he was fighting. And in verse 2, the Lord replies, He replies to the people. He says, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Do you hear what the Lord is telling you? He wants you to be assured that He is in control. God is near. And his judgments are timely. People aren't getting away with things. God sees sin and injustice taking place and will bring his judgment in his own good time. 
If unbelievers don't turn from their sin and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will eventually be punished in full for the evil that they've done. Sometimes this world seems to be spinning out of control. But this text reminds us that despite all appearances, God is maintaining order in the world. In verse 3, God says, When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. This is a metaphor for true righteousness and justice. For right and wrong, good and evil, sometimes the sin and injustice we experience makes it seem as though these pillars are crumbling. But God wants you to know that he is maintaining them. Verse 3 assumes there will be times when it will seem as though the world is tottering, but God will hold it up. God wants you to know that he is near and guiding the world, even if it appears to be out of control. He wants you to know that he's got you. He wants you to know that he's got you, that he will keep you from falling. I'm not breaking any news when I say that America and the West are experiencing a devolution, if you will, of morality that would have been hard to have imagined years ago, especially concerning things like sexuality and identity. The more people try to erase the moral lines, the more breakdown we will experience and the more suffering we will experience. The more our, our culture continues to devolve, the more isolated and alone believers tend to feel. It's hard to not get discouraged when you feel outnumbered. When you feel like things are going in the wrong direction. And again, God wants you to know that he's in control. He says, when the earth totters, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. God has the power to steady earth's pillars. And though things may appear to be out of control, history is playing out according to God's sovereign purpose. That's our second heading, God's sovereign purpose. God's control over all things includes rebellious humanity as well as the natural order. God is working in human history. He intervenes into the daily lives of people here and now. And in this text, he rebukes those who reject his moral standards. In verse 4 and 5, God warns the arrogant and the evil. Look at what he says. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. When you see the word horn in Scripture, that term is referring to strength and power. And it's important to remember that term because it's going to come up in Scripture somewhat often. So it's a term you want to know. 
And in these verses, God is rebuking those who are glorying in their power, in the power that they hold over others. A metaphor is being used here in verse 5. The metaphor of lifting up a horn is an ancient image regarding someone who delights in their power. Right? It's a picture of someone who is proud and puffed up because uh, they wield authority over others. You might have seen um, videos of two rams that are coming together and um, hitting one another, right? It's a picture of, of an animal who, after having won uh, its battle, is standing before the herd with its neck stretched out and its horns high, full of pride for its authority and its power over the pack. Where does power and authority come from? Verse 6 answers, Not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. When Scripture speaks of being lifted up, it's speaking of being exalted or having a measure of power and authority. And verse 6 draws attention to the sole source of authority in life. The psalmist says, don't look around you horizontally. Don't look to earthly powers. It doesn't come from the east or from the west. It doesn't come from the wilderness in the south. No. Look up. Exaltation and authority comes from God alone. And that's exactly the point of the psalmist in verse 7. He says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. It's his prerogative. History isn't just playing out at random. Your life is not playing out that way. No, life has meaning. It has purpose. The Apostle Paul talks about God's sovereign purpose in Romans 9, and he points to God's interaction with Pharaoh. Do you remember that? He quotes from Exodus 19. Paul writes, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And God was at work in the world when he raised Nebuchadnezzar to power. He said that he was going to give Nebuchadnezzar all of the kingdoms of the earth. In Jeremiah 27, 6, God says, I have given all of these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. But you know the story later, Nebuchadnezzar gets so full of pride, so puffed up that God teaches him a lesson. God lays him low. We read in Daniel 4 that Nebuchadnezzar hears a voice from heaven, and it says, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It's God who puts down and God who raises up. 
God is at work moving some up and some down that his purposes might be accomplished. You might remember the story of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by his brothers, only to wind up in Egypt and then ultimately find himself in a prison there. But what happens? What happens next? God raises him up. He raises him up so that he is second in power only to Pharaoh himself. And later, when his brothers become concerned that Joseph might take retribution for what they had done to him, what does he tell them? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Or think of how he saved his people by using Queen Esther, by raising her up to power. You see, the list could go on and on and on. God raises up and God lowers. God is at work in this world and in your life. He's unfolding it according to his sovereign purpose. Does God always tell us what his purpose is? Does he owe us an explanation? No. Our job is to trust him. Is he trustworthy? Yes. Are we to receive providence only passively and never proactively respond to it? For example, if you have a bad professor, does that mean you're not allowed to transfer out of his class? Of course not. Of course not. Listen, Christians are called to be good stewards. They're called to pray. They're called to search the scriptures. They're called to use wisdom. They're called to seek counsel. And they're called to be submissive and obedient to the scriptures. If you're enduring injustice at the hand of someone who has authority over you, who you perceive to be arrogant and wicked, know that the Lord is at work, even when it's hard to see his hand. It's God who raises up and lowers. Be encouraged. God has given you a promise that at the end, he'll bring you through hardships and raise you up. It's a praiseworthy promise that's grounded in his authority and power. It's God's sovereign promise. That's our third heading, God's sovereign promise. Psalm 75 seems to respond to doubts and questions raised in Psalm 74. In Psalm 74, God's people are in crisis. The temple has been destroyed. It's been burned. And they can't uh, worship God any longer as the Old Testament has prescribed. Um, They've been taken into exile. Uh, They're a, a minority in a culture where God's name is mocked. And the Babylonians thought that they had won the war against Judah because their gods were stronger and they let uh, the Israelites around them know it. 
and God's people were forced to listen to them blaspheme. Psalm 75 assures believers that the Lord is aware of everything. God sees the blatant disregard for his law. He sees the immorality. He's aware of the mockery. This psalm assures believers that the righteous judgment they long for will arrive, but it will arrive according to God's timing, not theirs. In verse 8, the Scriptures promise that judgment is coming. Verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. The cup is another one of these word pictures that's commonly used in the Bible. The term is a frequently used image for the portion God assigns someone. So it could be blessing or it could be curse. It could be blessing or it could be wrath. For instance, Psalm 16.5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Or the cup can be filled with wrath. For instance, Psalm eleven six says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And Job 21.20 says, Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. The wicked willingly drink God's wrath down to the dregs because God's judgment of them is giving them over to their desires. They choose to do the very things that will lead them to destruction. You'll notice that in verse 8, the cup contains wine well mixed. Do you see that? Spices were added to the wine to enhance its taste. Likewise, the sin that the wicked indulge in for the sake of their pleasure first intoxicates them and then destroys them. And Romans 1 confirms that, right? Romans 1 says that when unbelievers harden their hearts and indulge in sin, God gives them over. To their sin. Verse 8 pictures God tilting his cup of wrath to the lips of the wicked on the day of judgment, leaving them no choice but to drink it to the bottom. And the thought of God vindicating himself, the thought of God vindicating himself and his people makes the psalmist break out in worship. He desires to see justice and the name of God honored. Consider what he says in verse 9. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. That's how he responds to what God has said. The psalmist makes a commitment to declare God's authority and judgment forever. And he sings his praises. And you'll notice that the psalm ends with the divine oracle. God makes a promise here. In verse 10, he says, All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous 
shall be lifted up. God swears that a time of judgment is coming. He will cut off the power of the wicked. It is sure. Judgment is certain. And he promises that the righteous will be exalted, that they will be lifted up. The Bible says that there is a way for sinners to escape the judgment of God. The only way to escape God's wrath is through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made it plain that he would drink the cup of wrath for anyone who would believe in him. You've got to understand, drinking the cup was dreadful. It was so dreadful that Jesus asked if there was another way. He asked, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But the cross of Calvary was the only way the Son of God had to be crucified. He had to be. Jesus was willing to drink the cup for those who would come to him, confessing their sins and seeking salvation. Believers understand that Jesus has drank the cup of God's wrath in their place. And instead of drinking the cup of God's wrath, they drink the cup of blessing. Christ's death lays the foundation for the exaltation of his people. In verse 10, God promises that the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is a promise to encourage weary believers. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that he is building. And in Romans 8, Paul shows that through Christ, believers are more than conquerors in all their suffering and persecution. Whatever circumstances God ordains for your life, know this, you can anticipate an ending that is full of joy. Well, what about now? What about the crazy professor? What about a boss who is needling you because he knows that you're a believer? Remember, God is near. As incomprehensible as it might seem, it's all part, all of this, all the things that you're experiencing, they're all part of his plan. The Lord's ways are mysterious to us. We may suffer injustice. People who are openly against the Lord might have power, but you must always remember that God is sovereign and righteous and wise. He's directing every detail. He's working for the good of those who love him. And the wicked will be punished. And those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation will be vindicated. If you want peace that surpasses understanding, You have to look beyond this world and beyond this age and gaze upon Christ who has promised to right every wrong. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Psalm 75 is an encouragement to believers who are suffering injustice at the hands of unbelievers. It reminds them that the Lord will call the wicked to account and that God is in control. This passage encourages believers by demonstrating God's sovereign power, purpose, and promise. Amen. Let's pray. God, we know it, and we hear it, and you say it to us quite often, uh, but you know that it is still hard to do. And we thank you for these moments where you bring uh, your word to us and where you confirm it to us again, where you just tell us, listen, I know, I know I see Hang on, trust me. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you, Lord. Sometimes when these things, you bring these things into our life and, and, and it is super hard to see how, how this is working for good. Um, it, it's super hard to know what you're doing. And Lord, it, we know that um, we're not supposed to question you. We're supposed to trust you. And but the questions just rise in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. We, we want to know, um, and we don't want to suffer. You know that, Lord. We, um, we'd ask that you'd help us, that you'd give us strength, that you would continue to bring encouragement uh, our way. Lord, we can use as much encouragement as you're willing to pour out upon us, and so we would ask uh, that you would do that. Uh, that you would send believers our way, that you would open your word to our minds and your heart, our hearts, that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, would you help us? Would you encourage us? Would you help us to be an encouragement to those who are hurting? Lord, we need you, and we need you badly. We'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.